So let's stand together for the reading of God's authoritative word to us this morning. Hear the word of God. Then Job replied, Indeed, I know that this is true, but how can a mortal be righteous before God? Though one wished to dispute with him, he could not answer him one time out of a thousand. His wisdom is profound. His power is vast. Who has resisted him and come out unscathed? He moves mountains without their knowing it and overturns them in his anger. He shakes the earth from its place and makes its pillars tremble. He speaks to the sun and it does not shine. He seals off the light of the stars. He alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. He is the maker of the bear in Orion, the Pleiades, and the constellations of the south. He performs wonders that cannot be fathomed, miracles that cannot be counted. When he passes me, I cannot see him. When he goes by, I cannot perceive him. If he snatches away, who can stop him? Who can say to him, what are you doing? God does not restrain his anger. Even the cohorts of Rahab covered cowered at his feet. How then can I dispute with him? How can I find words to argue with him? Though I were innocent, I could not answer him. I could only plead with my judge for mercy. Even if I summoned him and he responded, I do not believe he would give me a hearing. He would crush me with a storm and multiply my wounds for no reason. He would not let me regain my breath, but would overwhelm me with misery. If it's a matter of strength, he's mighty. And if it's a matter of justice, who will summon him? Even if I were innocent, my mouth would condemn me. If I were blameless, it would pronounce me guilty. Although I am blameless, I have no concern for myself. I despise my own life. It's all the same. That is why I say he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When a scourge brings sudden death, he mocks the despair of the innocent. When a land falls into the hands of the wicked, he blindfolds its judges. If it's not he, then who is it? My days are swifter than a runner. They fly away without a glimpse of joy. They skim past like boats of papyrus, like eagles swooping down on their prey. If I say, I will forget my complaint, I will change my expression and smile. I still dread all my sufferings, for I know you will not hold me innocent. Since I am already found guilty, why should I struggle in vain? Even if I washed myself with soap and my hands with washing soda, you would plunge me into a slime pit so that even my clothes would detest me. He is not a man like me that I might answer him, that we might confront each other in court. If only there were someone to arbitrate between us, to lay his hand upon us both, someone to remove God's rod from me so that his terror would frighten me no more. Then I would speak up without fear of him. But as it now stands with me, 
I cannot. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and errant word. May he bless it to our hearts and lives this morning. You may be seated. After that reading, I think you'll understand why we're going to pray one more time. Let's pray. Father, you and I both know um, how this book has been working on my own soul. This is deep calling unto deep. And this is not for the faint at heart. And yet you have it in your word for your people. 42 chapters. So Lord, this morning we've come because we're thankful. We're thankful that Jesus took the penalty of our sins. And so this word that you have for us through your servant Job is a word we need to hear about suffering and about counseling others and about understanding you and your ways and trusting you when we can't. So be with me, your messenger, as I speak your word. Keep me from error and sin. And Lord, give us open hearts that are willing to receive by faith your word from heaven. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Very brief update, uh, um, summary. As we know, for those of us who haven't been with us, those of you who haven't been with us for our series in Job, um, Job does not know what happened in chapters 1 and 2, that God indeed had a reason, has a reason for his suffering. He doesn't know that. We do, as the readers of the book. His three friends don't know that either. So every time one of his friends counsels them, it, they always try to point back to, you must have done something sinful. That's why you're suffering. And each time Job has to say, seriously? You're like a broken record. I'm a blameless man. That doesn't mean I'm perfect. He's not saying he's perfect, but what he's saying is, I have done nothing in particular to deserve this type of extreme suffering. That's kind of where we're at. And so Job is struggling with the silence of God. And it's been, as we, we looked back in chapter 7, at that point, it's already been months. So I just want to catch you up to date on what's going on. So Job is really struggling on a bed of pain and agony to make sense of his suffering. And what we see in the chapters 9 to 14, that's the first cycle of dialogues between him and God and his friends. There's three altogether. And that section, by the way, is as long as the book of Luke, <laughs> the Gospel of Luke. So that's a pretty long section. Um, but what we're going to see in this as we finish up two more messages in this section, I want you to see a development. Now I'm going to jump right into preaching. And believe me, this stuff can preach. Uh, it'll preach, as we say as preachers. First thing is I want you to see is Job's first question is, who in the world could bring their case before God? Who could stand face-to-face, toe-to-toe, nose with God and say, I got an issue. I'm going to take you to court. And Job's point is, who could do that? I can't. His second thing, as he develops in his cry, and remember, this is a man in pain. This isn't a man just sitting in, in his couch eating potato chips, thinking of uh, you know, the world. This is a man in severe suffering. The second thing he says, man, I wish... There would be somebody who could go to court with me and can argue my case. Who could put one hand on God and one hand on me and arbitrate. 
And of course, Job at this point can't see anyone like that. So he's in despair. And then the third, the third development is Job just says, well, why not? I'll bring my own case. I'll take my own life in my hands because nobody else is here to bring my case to God. I'm going to throw all caution to win and I'm going to address the Almighty. And he begins a very dangerous path. He begins to try to put God in the dock. In other words, now he's going to cross-examine God. So that's, I want you to see that's where we're at. All right, but what I want to see, I'm going to point out just three things so I can keep it fairly brief this morning. We're going to see that Job, a blameless man, remember the beginning of the book and the end of the book, God himself calls him a blameless man. Job, a blameless man, struggles on his bed of pain and agony, and as he does, he cries out for three things. He cries out for justice. Anybody ever cry out for justice? Remember when, you were, when your kids are little? I remember when I was little. That's not fair. Well, Job wants justice. Second thing he cries out for is a mediator. He wants someone who could stand between him and God. Sound familiar? And the last thing Job cries out for, and this is another one as humans we can all relate to, he cries out for answers. But it's going to be interesting when we see what kind of answers he's looking for. It's not what you would think. Let me take a look at the first, let's take a look at the first one together. Cries out for justice. Now, chapter 8, this is uh, his words follow his buddy Bildad's words. And Bildad, of course, hits that same drum about Job must have done something wicked, and that's why God's punishing him. And so Bildad said this in the last chapter. He said, Behold, God will not reject a blameless man, nor take the hand of evildoers. In other words, God wouldn't be rejecting you if you're a blameless man. Therefore, what? You're not a blameless man. Now, Job gets a little sarcastic. And as we, we're going to see, you've got to love Job because he gets more and more jersey as he goes along. I mean, he is so sarcastic. You know, a lot of times when teams come and I get, like, sarcastic, I play with them. They're all shocked that a pastor would be sarcastic. Now I have a place to go. Job was sarcastic. But uh, maybe I shouldn't uh, imitate him. But anyway. This is what Job basically says. Don't you think I know these things? In other words, thanks, Captain Obvious. Job is a better theologian than all three of them put together. He basically says, I know God won't reject the blameless man. And I know that God can't have fellowship with the wicked. Listen, here's the thing we can all... What growing, maturing believer doesn't already know that? You don't have to, you know, be super uh, along in your Christian walk before you know God is holy and he will not abide wickedness. Job's like, duh. You know, I got to preach now. A lot of times um, we've done uh, summer mission teams now since 2010 where uh, teams come from all over the country to help us do mercy ministry. We've done Sandy Relief. And I've had people come, oh, have you ever read the book When Helping Hurts? And I'm telling you, sometimes if I get that question one more time, I'm like, no, I never heard of that book. I've dedicated my whole life these last eight years to serving the poor in Atlantic City. But no, I've never even heard of that title. And that's what basically Job is saying here. Listen, of course I know these things. In his case, that God won't reject a blameless man. But here's Job's question. All right, wise guy. How can a man be right with God? 
He's all wise. He's all powerful. How in the world can someone go up against him in a court of law and not get crushed? Not just lose, but get completely crushed. <laughs> hey, Job's real. He ain't messing around. These guys might have the luxury of discussing philosophy <laughs> over you know, a cigar and some whiskey, but not Job. This is his very life here. And for him, it's a spiritual life. It's a, his relationship with God that concerns him more than all of his loss. So Job shows them he can wax just as eloquently theologically as his buddies can. And he goes on and on about the wonders of the wisdom and the power of God in verses 4 to 12. And he caps it off with these words. Behold, he snatches away. Who can turn him back? Who can say to him, what are you doing? What's Job saying? Job is saying, God is, now hold it, put your seatbelt on. God is God. In other words, he's sovereign. Who in the world can tell him? Ask him, what is he doing? Who could call him to the carpet? Job is acknowledging God is sovereign. Not once throughout the book does he deny that fact. But then the issue that's really, that, that Job is really grappling with comes out in verse 14 and following. And here's basically what Job is going to say. It's just not fair. Even if I'm in the right, I can't even answer him. In other words, even if I summon him, he wouldn't listen. Verse 16, he's, he's accusing God of not listening. In verse 17, he crushes me and multiplies my wounds with no cause. Job is saying he's got no reason for this. Why would he do such a thing? And then Job complains, he won't even let me catch my breath. Verse 18, I mean, can you just get away for a minute so I can breathe? Remember I told you this would preach? How often those who suffer with no apparent reason, at least the reason that you can't see, feel these very emotions. God's not listening. You ever think that? You don't have to raise your hand. He ain't listening. Or here's the other one. He doesn't care. If he cared, he wouldn't be silent. He wouldn't be sending this. He causes me to suffer for no reason at all. And then how, how have you ever, I, I know, and I haven't even suffered uh, hardly anything compared to many of my brothers and sisters in the Lord. But how many times you've thought, man, he just keeps sending me one thing after another with no sign of relief in sight. I don't get a break. That's what Job is saying. You won't even give me, catch, let me catch my breath. One thing, I'm just getting over one thing, and boom, you hit me with another one. Job's friends, so-called friends, God doesn't punish the righteous, but only the wicked. Therefore, your suffering has to be due to some sin or wickedness on your part. And here's Job's response, and it's important to see that. Apparently, God does indeed crush the innocent, because you're looking at a glaring case in point. I've done nothing to deserve such suffering, yet here I am in a bed of pain and suffering. Explain that one away, rocket scientists. And then that just drives him, unfortunately, to do something in the book 
Uh, this is where we see where Job goes off the rails. The righteous man who is wise, the blameless man fears God, shuns evil because of his severe misery and the pain. And listen, not just the physical pain, and there was tons of that. I want you to understand, first of all, let me just back up for a minute. He was disfigured. He had oozing sores. He, could have, he had no relief physically. I don't know about you, but like if I get a stomach ache, you never ever get the kind of stomach ache, no matter how you move, it doesn't go away. Well, he had a body ache. Every single spot in his body was sore and in pain. But Job doesn't even complain as much about that as he complains about this question. Where's God? Where's his voice? You know, there's a, I remember a book. He is there and he's not silent. Job would say, I beg to differ. Oh, he's there all right. But he's silent. He ba basically, Job is insinuating, and he will get stronger later on. He's insinuating God is unjust. Now, here is one of the big, big takeaways from the sermon this morning that I want you to remember, even if you forget some of the other stuff. And it was when, it, when God showed it to me, I was like, I had a big aha moment. And here it is. Mark this down if you're writing notes. Experience is wrong sometimes. Whoa. What we feel, what we see, what we hear, and what we taste is not the end all of litmus tests for truth. Your experience is not the end all. Listen, I'll tell you why. Job's experience screamed what? What did his personal experience scream out to him? It screamed this. Unfair. Unfair. God crushes the innocent for no reason, and he lets the wicked go free. That's what I'm observing. That's my personal experience. But in reality, was that true? No, because we know, we get the insight here. God had a reason. Now, it wasn't the reason his three friends continue to reiterate again and again. That's the problem. They had the wrong reason because they couldn't see. But there was a reason. Elder Elmer Smick puts it this way. Job's experience told him that sometimes God crushes the innocent for no reason at all. Verse 17. We who are privileged to see the drama from the divine perspective know that Job was innocent and that God did have a cause. A cause beyond the purview of Job. A cause that could not be revealed to Job at that moment. Parents, we all know this to some degree. It's not a perfect analogy. But you know when your little child asks for the reason for why you want them to do something and you know they just don't have the capability of understanding why? And this is certainly one of the great lessons that Job eventually learns at the end of the book and a lesson that we must too come to terms with. Even when our present circumstances and fleshly senses seem to call God's justice and goodness into question, this is important, we need to trust God by faith, that again quoting from Smick, all God's sovereign acts are rooted in his righteous character, even when they are outside the bounds of human ability to evaluate them. In other words, even when we can't figure out what's going on, why he's doing what he's doing, we do know he does only what's in keeping with his righteous and holy character. 
But Job here, and humanly speaking, we don't want to be hard on Job, clearly crosses the line in verses 22 to 24. He comes right out and says that God destroys both the blameless and the wicked. And even worse in his pain, he says the Lord mocks at the sudden disaster of the innocent. Now that's an accusation against God. He goes as far as to say that God blinds judges. So once, once again in his pain and his suffering, Job misinterprets the silence of God. It's completely understandable from a human perspective. We can have some compassion on Job, hopefully more than his three friends did. Yet, but what we need to see here is, remember I mentioned that Job crossed the line here. It is an affront to a holy, good, and just God to accuse him of injustice. And as a matter of fact, that's the one thing that when God finally does speak to Job at the end of the book, that's what he calls Job on the carpet for. He says, okay, Job, now you're going to answer some of my questions. <laughs> but we'll get to that uh, when we get to it later in the end of the book. The thing that really hurts Job, and we see it again and again, is found in verse 11. Behold, he passes me by, and I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. Where is God? Job really wants to hear an answer from God himself. Not these three know-it-alls who know nothing. And on the one hand, here's the struggle. On the one hand, he knows that even if he could summon God, that it wouldn't be good for him. <laughs> but on the other hand, listen, who, I can relate to this sometimes. On the other hand, I'll take that if it comes along with God. That's scary. It's risky. But how could he hope to argue his case between the all-majestic, all-powerful, all-wise maker of the universe? And yet he longs. Listen, I don't know about you, but he longs for a word from heaven. This is the oldest book in the Bible, by the way, so he didn't have the Old Testament like some of the other saints did. I want you to understand this. So Job, Job turns from complaining that no one could contend with God in a court of law to longing for, for an arbitrator. And we're just going to spend a couple moments on that. That's the second thing. He cries out for justice. He cries out for mediator. Look at verse 32. For he is not a man as I am that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. Let him take his rod away from me and let not dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak without fear of him, for I am not so in myself. Now listen, listen. Commentators point out that this is not an exact um, shadow of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And there's a number of reasons for that. First of all, Job is not looking for a mediator who will take care of his sins, right? Because Job's case here is he's blameless. He hasn't done anything. In this particular case, he's just looking to have someone who would give him a fair hearing and to keep it safe. Because listen, this is what we sometimes forget. It's that old thing in the old Chronicles of Narnia when Lucy uh, asks about Aslan. Is he safe? Remember? She asks if the lion is safe. And then Mr. Beaver says, oh, no, no, no. Whoever said anything about him being safe. But he is what? But he is good. But he is good. And Job 
anticipates that mediator who did come and who was promised in the law and the prophets and the writings. And you see, this sometimes we talk about the continuity between the Old and the New Testaments, but sometimes we may forget about the discontinuity. Poor Job did not have the revelation we have. What do we know? We know we have a mediator between God and us. We know that, as Hebrews says, we have someone who is able. He's not unable to sympathize with our weaknesses because he's been tempted in every way, yet without sin. So think about it. This is the one Job could have related to if he had the revelation we have. And so all I want to say, he's going to talk more about this, so I just wanted to point it out in a very simple um, way this morning. Um, and he will develop this need for a mediator. And remember in chapter 19, some of us who know, it's one of the most famous passages in the book of Job. I know that my Redeemer, what? Lives. And we'll get to that. But for now, just notice that Job moves from, I can't argue my case. I want justice. I wish there was a mediator that would give me justice. And the last thing I want to point out, and we'll close on this last point, is that Job cries out for answers. And it's in this particular point where I had another aha and my last one uh, for this sermon. As I looked at these, these chapters, right, chapters 9 to 14, I tried to come up with a summary of Job's main complaint in these chapters. And I actually found a few verses in the text where Job himself summarizes what he's asking for. Don't you love that when the Bible just answers your question? Well, right here, verses 20 to 22, Job simply says this. Only grant me, I'm sorry, chapter 13, verses 20 to 22. Chapter 13, 20 to 22. Job says this. Only grant me these two things, O God, then I will not hide from you. Withdraw your hand far from me and stop frightening me with your terrors, and then look at verse 22. This is important. Then summon me, and I will answer. Or let me speak, and you reply. What's Job's heart's desire? His heart's desire is stop frightening me with your terrors. And more importantly, what? Hear me out. Speak to me and hear my cry. In a general sense, isn't this what all believing souls desire when they face chronic suffering? Relief from God and a response from God. Those are two things we want. Relief and a response. How much more a blameless man who did nothing of note to deserve such severe suffering from the hand of God. Look, my problem is I know I deserve it. I, no way would I do what Job did. <laughs> you with me? I heard just this past week someone say something along the lines of, your silence speaks volumes. Now there's truth in that sentence, but here's the problem. The volumes that it speaks is not always what you think. In other words, sometimes silence doesn't mean what you think it means. 
Let's see how Job interpreted God's silence. Real quick, we'll run through this. Chapter 10, verse 3. Does it please you to oppress me, to spurn the work of your hands, while you smile on the schemes of the wicked? That's what the silence of God spoke to Job. 13.26, for you write down bitter things against me and make me inherit the sins of my youth. Whoa. 14.13, if, if only you would hide me in the grave and conceal me till your anger is past, if only you would set me a time and then remember me. So here, here's what I want to point out to summarize it. He sees his suffering as proof positive that God is spurning him, that God is writing down bitter things against him, that God makes him inherit the sins of his youth. In short, he interprets God's silence as an indication that God is angry with him. You listening to me, church? In other words, the silence of God for him speaks a word that God is angry, that God is punishing him because he's mad at him. Even to the point of Job's like, okay, so I haven't done anything presently, that's way out of line, so it must be the sins of my youth that he's punishing me for. Wow, he's going back to try to find a reason for this. So sometimes, I think this is the big aha for me too, sometimes silence doesn't speak at all. You get me? And that was Job's problem. Job's problem was I'm not getting any communication on this. Francis Anderson, a commentator, puts it this way. Job is not arguing a point. Listen, this is important. He is trying to understand his experience. Hence, he often talks to himself, struggling in his own mind. He is also trying to retain or recover his lost friendship with God. That's the issue for Job. Hence, he appeals to God again and again. His prayers may shock his religious friends. But at least he keeps on talking to the heedless God. His friends talk about God. Job talks to God. And this makes him the only authentic theologian in the book. I'm going to close with this. And I'm going to tell you something about Brother Job. Yes, God will rebuke him. But God will also restore him. But what I think is a big takeaway for you and me. It's found in the book of James. I don't have chapter and verse. I didn't memorize it, but it's in the fifth chapter. I don't remember which verse. But James says, look for as an example at our brother Job and his patience. Look at the patience of Job and look what the Lord eventually brought about in restoration in his life. My brothers and sisters, what I want to tell you is this. No matter what you're going through, no matter how hard your suffering is, no matter how difficult your circumstances, continue to pursue God. Even the God who's shrouded in mystery at the time. There's a great reward for continuing to trust him, trust his heart when you don't understand what his hand is doing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you as we look at these words, as we look at Job's life, as we see his, even in his suffering, he pursued you. 
But we also must say with fear and trembling, we thank you that you pursued him and that you continued to teach him, to love him, and even when he didn't feel your presence, to be with him. And Father, how we thank you for progressive revelation, for Jesus, that what Job only hoped for in a very shadowy way, we know for certain. We have the Lord Jesus who speaks on our behalf and who is the mediator between you and us. We thank you that he will never leave us nor forsake us. God, enable us not to give pat answers to our brothers and sisters who suffer, but to just be your presence, to mourn with them, and to encourage them to persevere. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.